Welcome to Decolonize to Thrive, a podcast dedicated to nourishing the soul through stimulating conversation, thought-provoking facts, and vulnerable exchange. Join me, your host, Ina Briggs, and my co-host, T. Lacey, as we disseminate what it means to decolonize the many facets of our lives. All right. So as our podcast community knows, um, I'm sure very well, (laughs) technology is very unpredictable. And today we are experiencing that to the fullest. So T will be joining this conversation at some point. uh, But we are so excited to be having a conversation with uh, Larissa Valeriano, who um, is a really, really amazing mental health um, clinical director and is here to talk to us about something that Uh, I personally am really, really curious to learn more about, and that is how to heal our inner child. Um, And so I've heard a little bit of talk about this, but um, we're going to deep dive into this today. And we we know that we can learn so, so much from you um, and all the wealth of knowledge that you bring around this topic. So I'm not going to hesitate to introduce our guest. Uh, Larissa Valeriano brings to clients a comprehensive approach to treatment, As a clinical director with a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling and an LPC associate license, Larissa's approach to solutions and outcomes is rooted in connections, vulnerability, servant leadership, and adding value to others. In addition to serving as the clinical director at Continuum, Larissa also provides individual counseling, working closely with clients in processing childhood and adulthood trauma, as well as teaching emotional regulation skills and other DBT and CBT coping skills. She's trained in EMDR therapy and specializes in trauma and substance use disorders. Larissa understands the importance of bringing evidence-based therapy to clients and ensures that she and her treatment team provide ethical, evidence-based therapeutic approaches and utilizes best practices. And with that, we welcome Larissa Valeriano to Decolonize to Thrive. Woo! Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that introduction. I'm really excited to talk about um, this topic um, because I think it's a very important one. And um, I think it's a different uh, view than maybe most people think about in, in treating substance use and our inner child. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. And I think it's one of those topics where if you don't have the background knowledge and you just see, you know, how to heal your inner child or addressing anything regarding an inner child, um, it can be a little bit too, you know, woo woo for some people, right? They're like, Uh what is this about? Um, And so as someone who does have a background in mental health and psychology, um, I've heard about it. I've even engaged in some inner child work uh, through therapy. um, But I think disseminating this information through conversation and putting it out there for, you know, a broader audience is really, really important. And so again, we are really happy to be having this conversation with you today. Uh, But before we get into, you know, just like the specifics around what it means to do inner child work, we definitely want to, you know, create space for you to just share a little bit more with us about who you are. Absolutely. So um, I am the clinical director at Continuum Outpatient Center. Um, So we service um, individuals experiencing substance use and um, co-occurring mental health 
um, disorders. We um, service adolescents as well, 14 to 17. So we are um, really trying to uh, target youth and then also help kind of as they get older, if they need that um, additional support, we're able to provide that. Um, So uh, specifically about me, I graduated um, with my master's degree in clinical mental health in um, 2019 and um, started um, diving in into uh, counseling as well as some um, administrative work as well. Um, so that's how I got to this position where I get to do um, the the clinical director stuff, right? That's always fun with having to do the administrative things, set in place mm-hmm. policies, procedures. Um, I love that. And um, I also uh, get to practice my skills um, and utilize them and create real connections with the clients here. So it's really cool that, you know, I get to be able to put into place policies and procedures that are going to help the clients and also be um, so intimately invested um, in one-on-one therapy with them as well. I also can um, jump in and help with group therapy um, as well at, at some time. So it, it's, it's a unique, uh, unique relationship. I think that we have here. Yeah. And so, um, what would you say fuels your, the work that you do, your personal background or anything about you, um, that you're, you know, open to sharing with the, with the podcast community, um, that kind of drew you to this work? Yeah. So, I have always been drawn. I'm not exactly quite sure the initial, like what, what initially drew me, but ever since high school, I knew I wanted to do something with mental health. Um, I took Mm -hmm. the first and only class there was in psychology in high school and immediately knew what I was going to do. Um, There was no question it was just always set. Um, But I think I've always been drawn to why do people do the things that they do? And at first I initially was thinking, oh, I need to go to med school and be like, go into neuroscience and study the brain as like an organism and, you know, Mm -hmm. what parts of the brain are lit up and all, and what is active, what, what's the chemistry there. And what I have found in counseling rather is that we get to look at the brain at, as like the mind, like the, um, the reflective part of human beings. And so whereas the brain as an organism, studying it that way um, yeah. is important work, um, but it's, it's, it's objective, right? It's, right. it's that it's just kind of like the science, right? Yeah. But when we get to actually talk to people and see you know, what did they experience in life? It's, it's really subjective. And so it's almost like you're doing, um, like detective work, you know, what happened. And so I think that's really what, I think that's really what keeps me going because people, um, make new discoveries in session with you. And then Mm -hmm. they say, I didn't think about it that way, but okay, now what do I do? How do I fix that? And that's always the fun question. Like, okay, well, yeah. we've we've found the issue. Now this is where the real work begins. So like some of it is just, we got to get you to even recognize the issue first. Yeah. And I can't just come out and tell you always. Um, mm-hmm. And so once they get that like light bulb, 
Um, it's like, okay, this is where the work begins. And, and it gets really exciting to see them make that transition and um, blossom. And so I think that's what keeps um, myself going. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And I love the analogy of a therapist being very similar to that of a detective, right? We see the outcome, we see the result, but now we need to do the work of figuring out like, where did this start? What was the root cause? Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think is really, you know, perfect for um, our initial, you know, wondering about like, what is inner child work? Um, How would you describe that? I think I would describe it as um, understanding the unmet needs Mm -hmm. that you had as a child. So I typically describe it as, um, as children, we have our basic needs, which is food, shelter, water. Mm -hmm. Um, on top of that, we, we have emotional needs that need to be met. And when those aren't met, um, we start to develop these core wounds, um, or core beliefs, negative core beliefs. So inner child work is addressing those unmet needs, Mm -hmm. the, um, negative core beliefs that developed, and why recognizing how that um, influences relationships in your adult life, influences your behaviors in your adult life, influences negative coping skills in your adult life. And then we work on reparenting yourself because you have to be able to be what you didn't receive or what you didn't hear. You have to be able to give that to yourself now because there's no guarantee that other people are going to do that for you. You can't control others. You can only control yourself. Um, And so we really work on that inner self-talk and that view of themselves. Yeah, that's a really great definition for inner child work. And what I thought about as you were speaking is, you know, what we didn't receive from our caregivers or from our parents um, as we were growing up, we probably seek that out in relationships, right? In romantic partnerships, maybe in other relationships that we may um, participate in throughout the course of our adult lives. Um, And so I can imagine that some of those core wounds would show up in those spaces. Um, But what are some other signs that we're carrying around core wounds that may need to be healed? Oh, yeah. Let me go ahead and explain some of the 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 general um, core wounds that most people tend to there's categories that they can fall under. Of course, there's many, many different kinds. However, they typically fall under like three categories, and that is the need to uh, feel loved, the Mm -hmm. need to feel seen and heard. Um, and the need to feel safe, and that could be emotionally um, or physically safe. Okay. So when those um, are not met, then we develop these beliefs like, um, I'm unlovable. Mm. For like, if you didn't feel loved, I'm unlovable. Um, yeah. If you didn't feel seen or heard, you might develop. Uh, you might develop something like, um, I'm not important. Um, right. I don't matter. Yeah. And uh, if you don't feel seen, I mean, sorry, if you don't feel safe, you might develop beliefs like I'm uh, I'm not safe. My emotions aren't safe. People aren't safe um, and things of that nature. When you so let's let's say, for example, we're talking about um, the need to feel um, important. Yeah. Right. The need to feel important. Let's say we um, we're behaving those those manifests in our everyday life, right? Mm-hmm. And and we can identify that by some behaviors such as 
um, overreaction to like friends canceling um, or um, overreaction to maybe not being included in something. Mm. Um, another one could be, you know, when you didn't ever hear like, I'm proud of you growing yeah. up. Yeah. Um, you may start to, that falls under the not seen, not important. Yeah. You may start to feel like, oh, I'm incompetent. Um, I'm, I can't do this. I'm not doing enough. Um, and so that, for example, can show up at work where you get, you know, constructive criticism mm -hmm. and then you take it very harshly on yourself yes. um, and start telling yourself things like, um, I'm incapable. I know I might as well quit. I'm not, I'm not this, yeah. I'm not that. Yeah. So it, you really identify it in um, a lot of your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so I always tell people, be aware of what you're telling yourself, because initially we generally uh, can recognize how we're feeling. We recognize the emotion, but we don't recognize the thought that we just had yeah. prior to yeah. feeling that. Um, and so you can usually identify that core uh, wound, that core belief manifesting itself in what your internal dialogue is. Yeah, that's so good. And what I hear you saying is like, it's not that you are responding or reacting to the feeling of, I don't feel important. It's like an overreaction to the feeling of not being important. Is that correct? I would say it's more along, on the, along the lines of you're, you are reacting to that thought. That thought oh, okay. is your okay. truth at like the core. Okay. And so you are, you are, that's like your belief system. Mm. And so any, anytime something um, is similar, any situation, it's going to skew your perspective. If your right. core belief is I'm incompetent, I'm not important. Any yeah. situation that um, kind of like rubs the, the line of that. Yeah core wound is going to start sprouting up different negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. And those thoughts are then going to drive emotions. The emotions are going to drive the behaviors. And so that like, for the example that we were using the thought of, Oh, I'm incompetent, right? Some things that sprout up are, I should quit. I I'm not good at this. I'm not, I'm never going to be X, Y, and Z. Um, and then yeah. you start feeling sad. You start um, feeling, you know, um, discouraged and the behavior is I might I'm quit I quit or yeah. you withdraw or you stop trying as much um mm -hmm. and so yeah. I think it, it's more of the the focal point is that thought you're reacting to that thought mm. so it's almost like a trigger because there's mm -hmm. yeah so it's like you have this belief and so if something triggers it then it it's pretty much just put into motion, even though it's realistic that sometimes people may forget to invite you to, you know, a certain event, or there may be um, something that all of us encounter that makes us feel like, you know, not the best in that moment. Um, but the difference is in identifying that you have a core wound around it is like ruminating thoughts or, you know, allowing it to be sort of like a, um, almost like a trickle down uh, effect into just, you know, spiraling into feeling like you're not important at all. And then acting out of that. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, Absolutely. thank you for giving that, you know, providing that um, detailed explanation. Um, so as you think about your own journey, 
you know, um, what has that looked like for you in terms of identifying your inner child and, you know, healing your wounds? So I think having to reflect, because this is a lot of what I do every day is this inner yeah. child work. And so a lot of times you as a counselor are almost painfully aware um, of your own, right? Um, right? But I think that over the years, I've kind of come to terms that um, some of my core beliefs are, um, I'm not good enough. Um, I'm incompetent. I'm not capable. Um, yeah. Yes, I can relate. I would those are more so they have to be, a, I, I categorize, categorize those under the unseen or unimportant. And yes. um, I still struggle with trying to identify exactly where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that those are, that those are my core wounds. Those are my core wounds. And I have to really nurture that. And um, I know that a lot of times, at least um, me personally, those core wounds have, um, I've lacked a lot of confidence. I've had to really try to push myself and be intentional with mm-hmm. the type of growth um, that I have that I have received, mm-hmm. but it has really affected, um, it could have affected my whole career point, I'll tell you that. I, I questioned if I could be able to be a counselor because one, I am a, I am an introvert. Um, don't let like speaking to people all day, every day fool you. I am a, I am very introverted, and when I'm going through this process of um, going to school and learning all of this, I was like, "There's no way I can do this. There is absolutely no way that I can that I can talk to somebody like this, and guide them, and I don't even know what the heck is happening with me. I can't, you know what I mean? It was very much um, imposter syndrome." Yes. And I get that a lot. I still get that. And so working through that, I have to remind myself that I am where I need to be. And I am at a place in my life for a reason There just didn't happen. Right. So yes. I obviously have some competence in, in something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not saying that to be like cocky, like I have work to continue. I have to continuously tell myself that. Um, oh, and yes. so that's how I, that's how I work with, that's how I continue to work on it. But there are days, I mean, that I, I'm, I'm human. So I will have those thoughts still, mm-hmm. they still come up. So I don't think we ever, um, truly just get rid of them because as human beings, right. We have, um, we're very emotional creatures. And so you know, we can't be at this level, this high all the time. We're going to have some lows. Um, and so it, it just really takes me being very aware and very intentional with what I choose to tell myself, especially when we're going into um, things like a, a group setting where you have to teach a group. Um, that's where a lot of my anxieties come out because I'm like, they're, I mean, I feel like an imposter yeah. um, sometimes. So I think that's where it truly, that's where I truly see it the most. And um, it's just this continuous thing of me telling myself, you know, yeah, you, 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 where you need, you're where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that vulnerability. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And it's also really helpful just to know that you are aware of your own experience as a therapist and, you know, that you're acknowledging your humanity and that you are not exempt from, you know, the same things, right? We, it is a, a, every single day we have to be 
um, conscious and we have to put forth the work that it takes to live the lives that we want to live. And so what I heard you name in, um, in terms of some of the techniques that you use is like being aware of your thoughts um, and then, you know, countering those thoughts with reminding yourself, I deserve to be here, you know, and I think that's definitely evidence of progress towards um, identifying, you know, those that it's not you, it's just your inner child that is, you know, remembering what it felt like when you were, you know, small and you didn't, for whatever reason, you know, it brings those feelings up. So um, what are some other techniques that are used in inner child work if someone is interested in, in uh, you know, working towards healing um, their inner child? So we do a lot of um, journaling prompts to get them in the mindset of thinking about, for example, what what would have been healing for you to have heard growing up that you didn't hear? Mm. And so uh, we do journaling where you're writing to your younger inner, uh, your younger self. Oh, yeah. um, so, so you have to, you're addressing it as like um, little Larissa, for example, it, you know, you are X, Y, and Z, you are, you know, um, a hard worker and you, yes. you try your best at everything and I'm proud of you because so you're you're like talking to your little self mm-hmm. um so that we it's a lot of journaling and some other things that um help people and, and this is not for everybody I get it um but for some people it helps for them to kind of reconnect with their younger self or their inner child so sometimes we'll have them look at um old pictures of themselves when they were younger and think about, you know, look at this time, what was happening during this time. Um, you know, mm-hmm. how was family dynamics during this time, really trying to get them back into that feeling and um getting used to understanding what that child needed. Um, other things are, and this is where people I kind of lose people sometimes, but I'm like, hey, bear with me, hang in there. Um, is we have people write with their non-dominant hand of the critical Mm. things that they say to themselves. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, the you're not worthy, whatever. And they're writing that with their non-dominant hand. And then I ask them to like, take a look at what you're writing and what, like, what is, what would you say to that critic who's telling this younger person that you're not worthy? right does that feel right to you um so those are just some of the techniques it's just it's a lot of reflection um and and journaling is typically the way that um at least for myself the way that I typically go about inner child work Mm. Mm -hmm. um have we already talked about some of the differences between like uh, healing and like between healing your inner child work and like coping um, with childhood wounds? Uh, I think in my experience um, there, I don't know, I think there's just this like weird misconception where if you're even thinking about it, then like you're healing. And I think that we're drawing a distinction yeah. between the difference between coping with a thing and the difference between healing from a thing. So Larissa, can you like try to clarify this line for us? Yeah. yeah. So what basically just to talk about it in different terms is you're describing a, a band-aid and then you're describing healing the yeah. actual wound. So band-aids, which is like coping skills in the moment when you're triggered in that moment, 
that's where the CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy comes in, where you're right then and there thinking about the thoughts, right? That's when you're going through, you know what? Nope, that's not correct. You are worthy. You are loved. All those things. That is the band-aid. That's the coping skill. Underneath that, this is continuous work to heal this deeper, like what we would consider a bullet hole wound. This, this healing takes a more long-term work. And that's when you're really doing the work with the journaling and the being uh, reflective, constantly reflecting, what didn't I hear as a child, coming to terms with maybe some childhood experiences and identify them as, yeah, maybe that was abusive or maybe, you know, this uh, wasn't normal growing mm -hmm. up. And so really, really um, coming to terms with that, processing that, um, and again, identifying the things that you needed to hear and you didn't get and learning how to do that for yourself. And that start or that continuously, uh, that continuous work also can be um, the, the CBT skills. So again, the CBT skills, the thoughts, the band-aid, but we also need that band-aid to heal the inner child, uh, the inner child wound. If that makes, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Is it like okay. the longer you perform the band-aid, the longer you work on the band-aid, it like kind of starts from the top down, like kind of can work its way down. So like healing or like doing the coping mechanism can help towards the healing, but there's also a lot more that goes toward the, the healing. Yes, because what happens is um, when you're, starting to work on this bigger, deeper wound, obviously there's going to be, you know, pains that start to arise and you need to be able to like wrap that up really quickly. Mm -hmm. If it starts to get super painful or, you know, um, starts to get out of hand. And so that's what we're talking about with the, the coping skills are to helping to wrap it up, but they will also help to continue to heal that, that wound that's, um, needing that deeper and uh that that deeper level mm -hmm. so yeah yeah thanks for explaining that and clarifying that because I think I think that was one thing that I was also confused on as someone yeah. who uses skills like this is like this is helping like is there what more what else what more do I can I do you know besides yeah. like help soothe myself in the moment of being triggered right Right. Yeah. And, and the band-aid skills, the coping skills don't only have to be the thoughts like we've talked about, yeah. um, like grounding skills, because people who have experienced trauma and start to like dissociate or start to have um, flashbacks or start to have a, you know, high end, you know, emotional response within a, a coping skill, a band-aid skill, wrap it up real quick is, you know, these, the grounding skills, putting like ice packs on your hand to, you know, cause that relaxation response, doing your breathing techniques to do that, to get that relaxation response. So those are all coping skills, but those are band-aids for the moment. And I hear you saying that like both of them are important. Like they just are used for different aspects of the process. So coping mm -hmm. isn't less important it's just it is important it just serves a different purpose um because i i know that some of the rhetoric out there is about like oh this is simply coping but it's not actually useful until you heal 
you know, and I, I wanted to make sure that we, you know, pointed that out. The coping is relevant. It is necessary, but it serves an entirely different purpose than the healing, which takes, you know, more depth and, and more time and also yeah. um, most likely more support. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and also I just want to, because I know that not everyone who listens to the podcast has a background in mental health. Um, and so we use terms like CBT, um, you know, if you wouldn't mind just kind of explaining what that means. And also I'm just going to like tack on here. Like, can we talk a little bit about the difference between like, uh, like CBT, CBT, CDBT, um, and like DBT, I'm sorry, you know the acronyms way better than I do. So if you could just talk us through this. <laughs> of course, yeah. DBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's what um, typically coincides with the inner child work. Yeah. Um, CBT targets. So there's a, like, a cycle. Our thoughts influence our emotions. Our emotions influence our behavior. So CBT focuses on changing that negative thought to a more positive, helpful um, adaptive thought. Um, DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, that is, it really focuses on emotional regulation. So also very, uh, very important in inner child work as well, because it's like a coping skill as well. You need to um, learn how to regulate your emotions. So emotional regulation, distress, tolerance skills, um, a lot of mindfulness, um, a lot of mindfulness and um, what's the last one? Distress tolerance, emotional regulation, mindfulness. Can't recall the last one, but though it, it's a lot of um, how to uh, adjust like your behaviors based off of you know what you're experiencing, your emotions. They're very like uh, here. Here I am at a heightened level. And here's what I can do behaviorally to help bring me back down. There's some there's some uh, thought processes in that that are similar to cognitive behavioral therapy, um, but it's generally around um, like the behavioral things. And I just remembered the last one. It's um, uh, interpersonal interpersonal skills. So that's the, that's a big one. That's a really big one. That is like your I statements. That's assertive communication. That is um, like the assertive communication is how you set boundaries. And so when you're doing inner child work, it's important to know how to set boundaries. Um, it's important to have that uh, communication style to be able to say, I feel this way when you do this, because in the future, I'd like you to do this. So in that sense, you're setting yeah, a boundary, boundary, sorry. Um, so they, they, those two are very important in um, treating uh, trauma in general. Yeah. So we have two of these different, we have two of these different therapies. Um, and you've talked about using like CBT more or, or over DBT. Do you use one over the other for like any particular reason? Can you use both or like is one good for one thing while another is good for another? You taught it. Um, yeah, so we as therapists, we have a general like therapeutic approach that we just jive with and mine is CBT. Oh, um, so I tend I to see. use a lot of that. However, uh, we we need to make sure as therapists that we're knowledgeable on um, 
the multitude of therapeutic approaches that there are out there because not every client's going to resonate um, with CBT. It's very much client-centered. So whatever they're needing, we, t- we, we make sure that we do that for them. Cool. I did not know that. I feel like I always thought that it was you know, like there was some sort of internal beef going on where like some people were like CBT <laughs> and the other one was like CBT and like there was like some sort of feud. Uh, um, also for context, I'm in academia. So like everybody's in a feud in academia, you know what I'm saying? Um, so like I wasn't sure if there was like beef going on or if it was like, you know, something that you just like go with. Um, but I really like hearing that it's client centered and that it depends on like where people are in their healing process and like what they need in that moment and like what kind of like jives with everyone. So um, this is like a main question that I've had since uh, we've known that we were going to talk to you. And uh, I have like my own thoughts about this as an adult who has a therapist. <laughs> um, but I'm curious about how difficult it is for you to convince folks that some of their current behavior or like their current circumstances or like any of that is rooted in a childhood wound or trauma or happened that like they um, either acknowledge or don't acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it it's hit or miss. I would say it fluctuates. Um, most often when people get here, they are aware that there's something right yeah. not right yeah um how uh, i will say before i get more into it however there are like i said people who are not ready to go there mm-hmm. it, they are coming to us because it's substance use and it's substance use only and um you know this may be an unpopular um, opinion but i believe that substance use is a coping skill because you're trying to cope with something deeper Um, so most often I'm able to say, Hey, um, you know, this is typically what happens when we don't meet these inner, uh, we don't get these, um, emotional needs met. Um, and they can generally, we'll start out with identifying what it was that they didn't get and we'll start working on that. And then it gets really deeper. And then that's where I see most of the hesitation or the, it goes back to surface level. And so at that point, you have to decide how much do I push them and how much do I meet them where they're at right here and right now. And that just that just really takes um, knowing the client um, and also just knowing um, if they're out of their um, emotional like tolerance window. Yeah, yeah. So you just... Yeah you don't jump right into it, right? The first session, like, tell me everything that ever hurt you and let's talk about, you know, abandonment and rejection and all the good things. No, (laughs) definitely for most of us, we probably need to do a little bit of a buildup. And also these are really, you know, um, emotionally kind of taxing topics. So you want to feel safe um, enough to share Mm -hmm. those things. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and we know that you are you know, working with individuals who are living with, you know, mental health and substance abuse, um, disorders. Um, and so we're curious if you've noticed, you know, the connections between, um, individuals who are kind of, you know, dealing with these disorders and the types of inner child work that they need to do. Yes. 
though, like I said, um, this could be an unpopular opinion, but I... For the record, I think we love spicy takes here on Decolonize. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yes, I, I truly believe that substance use is, is not separate from mental health. Substance use is a coping skill for something deeper going on. Um, so the connection is that there's something that they are trying to mask. There's something that they're trying to avoid thinking about. And yes. they have learned that, hey, this, I don't have to think about it. And I can get rid of this really quickly by doing X, Y, and Z. So um, by identifying your inner child work, you're healing. Because when we talk about just targeting substance use, it, you're targeting a, a band-aid yeah. right you're doing band-aid work so if you can go deeper and and really target your inner child wounds and why that that um that need to um drink came even came up then now we're getting rid of the root cause and so when we talk about if you want to get rid of a tree you don't just cut off the branches you remove it from the root and so that's the best explanation um, okay. that I can give to that is that there's a reason that drove or that drives this this um, substance use. Yeah, I think it's um, that's super important because it's like none of these things happen in a vacuum. Um, and I think there's like there is a tendency in like lots of different ways um, where we like to think that like a thing just showed up right um okay. and that it's like unconnected from things but everything is connected even if we don't think it is especially since we're in the middle of it yeah right yeah yeah I, I also heard you say like targeting just substance abuse is kind of like a quick fix mm -hmm. uh like for a band-aid mm -hmm. yeah and and so the, the way that that typically works is we we want to give them that coping skill, right? Because it's it's like we're helping them cope with whatever, you know, for mental health, for example, I'm going to give you anxiety coping skills for while we go into this deeper, this deeper thing um, for substance use. We're going to do a relapse prevention plan. Think about triggers and how to the coping skills to handle those triggers while we go into this work that initially um, drove this, uh, you know, desire to drink or use substances. So yes, it is, in my opinion, it is more of like a band-aid technique. Um, that's why it's, it's always a little bit more difficult, at least for myself, when somebody comes in and they're truly adamant that it's just substance use, because at that point I can only work on the band-aid. And I, you know, as a, as a, a counselor, I, you know, I love to go in and fix the or help heal that wound um and so but again like I said you have to meet the client where they're at and if they're not willing to go there you cannot force them and so for that time we give them that band-aid um and then when they're ready right then we can go a little bit deeper but sometimes we're just that we're just the band-aid in their healing journey and they can work on that you know once they feel ready to and that may not be with us and that's okay at least we've kind of giving them band-aid skills yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, sorry, one more question about this, which is, um, so you have a client who comes in and they're like, just substance abuse, nothing else is going on, just like hit me with those coping mechanisms. 
um, in the process, and I'm sure this like depends on the person, um, but like in the process of it, how long do you think it takes? Like how much work do you think it takes for that person to be like, hmm, maybe there is something else going on? Or like how long, or like, you know, how does that realization kind of come about? Like you said, yeah, it is very different for everybody. We yeah. typically, um, we can, we have their stages of change um, and we can yes. generally identify where the client is at and, and each, yes. And, and each stage there's, um, there's tasks that you can do for, to help them kind of move along in that process. Um, so for example, if a client is at um, pre-contemplation stage where they're in denial, there's not a problem. Generally, they've come to us because they're mandated um, or they've received an ultimatum from a family member, but they're not, they don't see it as a problem. There's no problem. So the main thing that you can do there is provide psychoeducation. Yes. Um, on yeah. on substance use, um, on mental health, and then they can move from okay, I've gotten more knowledge on it. Then they can start to think about maybe there's a problem, but I don't know. And then they move to contemplation, where it's like their it's their um, ambivalence is high, mm-hmm. right? They're starting to notice there's a problem. Um, and, and there you, you, when their ambivalence is high, you want to be able to talk to them about pros and cons. So you might work on what is the pros of continuing substance use? What is the pros of, um, quitting? What are, what are the cons of continuing and what are the cons of quitting? Um, and so most often, at least from my experience, people write, can, you know, they look at the list, they'll have them write it down. They look at the list and like, well, looking at it this way, you know, it's a little bit different. Um, and so that, sure, that that's yeah. The, yeah, so we just try to help them come to these realizations on their own, depending on the stage of change that they're in. So there's different kind of skills um, that you can use in identifying where they're at and then what to do in, in that stage. Um, if they're ready to work on it, ready to go, um, they may be in the preparation stage where now you guys are talking about your relapse prevention plan, what to do, your your uh, identifying triggers, and then when they're in action phase, they're ready, they're utilizing the things that y'all talked about, and they're doing that in their daily life. Um, and so it, yeah, that that's I think that's the best way I could explain it. Yeah, that was a that really was fantastic <laughs> explanation. I mean, you just walked us through all of the stages cool. of change. And I think among the things that I believe should be taught in school to everybody that are that is not taught in school, that is one of those things. Um, and I think so, because change is a really difficult process very often for many of us, mainly because we do have to kind of like progress through these stages um, and then they don't all happen, of course, at, at one time and they all bring about different emotions and, you know, it's different acceptance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And surrender and grief and, you know, so many things. And so I think um, I think that was a really, really great overview of, you know, how yeah. that happens. Yeah. yeah. And, you can, and, and the stages of change are not just for substance use. It's with anything that you all are trying to yeah. do, any behavior and um, any behavior, any kind of thought process that you're wanting to change, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not just for substance use. So um, I agree. I think it should be taught more. 
I, I really like this idea of like asking folks, um, you know, based on your experience, what isn't taught in school that needs to be? Yes, right. <laughs> um, I, I do believe that we need to talk more about, and I don't know how this would play out, but definitely stages of change, but also um, emotional regulation skills, oh. what to do in situations of like internal crises, right? Um, distress tolerance. So all of the DBT, like I think should be something that is really um spoken about and taught in schools because if if you're able to regulate your emotions and I and even identify some people can't even identify what they're feeling that's a problem um and that's where people get into trouble because right. we don't know what we're feeling and we don't know how to deal with it so if so we can just... teach that <laughs> if we can teach that at a young age then we at least reduce the risk for somebody coping negatively or acting out or doing all these negative things, getting into trouble because they don't know how to regulate their emotion or deal with that or express it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ina and I both have education backgrounds and I think um, like those social and emotional skills are something that we talked quite a bit about, um, about like how to regulate one's emotions, like what to do when you're activated, right? Like how to um, breathing techniques, I think I would like to just tack that on as like a part of a DBT yeah. skill of like, of like, you know, yeah. right, like what to do. Um, and I think it's like, like, blessedly, I think it's being talked about more, at least when I was a teacher, <laughs> like when I'm a teacher and I talk about it quite a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I definitely like, I think you're totally right. Um, the better, the more people kind of understand this, the more people can get a step ahead of where their emotions is, are and like can anticipate it. I think the less you'll have people like reaching um, for negative coping skills or like maybe actively even searching for positive ones. I agree. And I just to add one more thing is yeah. it's, it's part of DBT, but the assertive communication and setting boundaries, knowing your boundaries and mm. vocalizing mm. those boundaries and learning what it means to respect others' boundaries, um, I think is another important topic that should be taught. Oh, yes. so good. So, so good. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you know what? This It makes me think about something I've recently made a personal connection to in all of the years that I've been meditating and attempting to do breath work. Um, and as there's been like a progression with me as it relates to meditation, because I had an entirely wrong, like understanding about what it was supposed to be when I initially started. And now, um, I'm in a place where I feel like I get that it really helps me to regulate, um, especially when it comes to emotional regulation, I'm used to breathing, I'm used to calming myself. And I've really recently understood that like the main purpose for me, at least I know it's different for everyone. Um, of meditating is really learning how to calm myself down. And like, I've, you know, even heard more about like the vagus nerve. And I don't know if you all talk about that, but um, in the way that when you are breathing and your body is able to actually get that oxygen, it naturally helps your nervous system to like regulate uh -huh. itself. Um, and I'm like, oh, all the while I thought that meditation was this magical process that was just so these it's supposed to be so, you know, like a spiritual connection. It's not to say that it's not, but just on a very practical level, you know, something like that is really important for helping us to regulate our emotions. And I'm like, yeah, this should definitely have been taught in school. Why am I just Absolutely. now making this connection? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I also would like to say that the scientific can't also be spiritual. Like, I think it just makes more sense Ooh, that, that like okay. something that that something that feels super like magical, like that it does that like something is actually happening in your body to make yes. it happen. That is so true. Good yeah. point. Good point. I've been working uh, with some scientists yeah. recently. Don't mind me. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I want to interject one other thing because I think it begs to be said that I believe that like capitalism and lots of structures um, that are built on oppression rely on our distraction and not being able to, you know, cope and, and, and recognize what's happening around us. Um, I think that's really important because I think if we don't name that, we unintentionally position people as the problem when in actuality it's systems and structures that are in place to do so. Yeah, I I believe that um, as a society, right, we've, I mean, it's getting better, but we, we don't pay close attention to emotions. And like I said, because we're taught that, you know, don't show that it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of, um, you know, yes. So yes, I, I, I completely agree with that, that as a society in general, generally speaking, that's most people, not most people, but a lot of people can view mental health as um, a weakness. And in actuality, you're a human, you're a human being, what you're experiencing is an emotion, because as human beings, we are emotional creatures. And because of that, we're going to experience things like mental health issues if they're not addressed um, and, and coped with properly. Um, and so, yes, I think as a society, we are, again, we're getting better at recognizing it. Um, but in general, right, there's still a lot of, a lot of work to do in um, normalizing, having emotions and talking about emotions, um, yeah. talking about mental health. Um, because chances are you've experienced a, a mental health issue at some point in your life, but you may have not recognized it because you didn't know what you're experiencing because nobody talked about it. If you talked about it, you were weak. Right. Um, so yes, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who is a therapist. Um, his name is Danny. Shout out to Danny. <laughs> that mental health is wealth. Um, a lot and I love that saying and I think about it a lot because of like these kinds of things if we don't talk about mental health if we don't recognize that we have it and recognize that mental health is part and partial of our physical health and like our just being in the world generally then we can't like we we can't human you know and I think it's also kind of a problem that like Larissa you're right like we don't talk about this enough and then also we exist in structures that don't make space for it you know, like if you go through a mental health crisis and you're at a job, if you don't have like FMLA, then you either right. have to keep working you uh, just and throw yourself under the bus or you have to like go take care of yourself and then like not have much to come back to. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we have sick days, um, but we don't necessarily think of the sick days as a mental health day. No. You know, um, no. and and I'm blessed to be able to be at a, a position where when my staff come to me and, and, and generally say, I need a mental health day, I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think of, you know, we think of, we think of our sick days, but we don't necessarily think of our mental health days. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it could be very subjective. So that's where the issue lies. Right. Because some people can take advantage of that. And I totally get that. Um, 
but I think it's important to, you know, to have that in place as well and to think about different ways that we can start to also incorporate that. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, that's like also something important, like for those of us who um, have people that work with us, right, that we're like their supervisors. I have a couple of supervisees, which is like crazy, um, which like also, you know, when they come to me and they're like, hey, T, I totally didn't get to do this thing because I decided that I really needed to rest. And I'm like, great love that <laughs> like like please do that yeah. you know I love that you've created conditions right but get on it when you feel ready right. yeah yeah when you have to, <laughs> like when you have time when you have mental energy like yeah then do that yeah. I had someone say to me today like I sent out an email that had um because I'm always a teacher at heart, I have everybody do a reflection. Everybody gets a reflection. And so I'm like, hey, you submitted some of these materials to like do a reflection, right? And I was like, you don't need to do this until like maybe three weeks in the winter quarter. And I saw one of my people today and she's like, listen, I'm, I put a note in my calendar. I'm going to do it week two, winter quarter. And I'm like, love this for you, right? Like, yes. like, right? Like being able to be the person that's like, you can take this time if you yes. need it, right? And we can be gentle with each other like that. Mm-hmm. It's necessary. It's necessary, especially if we have like structures that won't write. Like, I don't know about y'all, but like my company is not about to give us like three weeks of uh like sick days that so that some of them can be mental health days, right? So um like since they're not about to do that, I feel like the small thing that I can do is like tell somebody it's okay, right? Like I'm not gonna tell on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and essentially, sometimes that mental um, burnout can actually lead to actual sickness. Yeah. Um, and then you do take care of your sick days. But mm-hmm. um, you you think about that, like, I want my team to be able to come in and function um, to the best of their ability. And when they're not feeling 100% because they're feeling burnt out, then they need to take that time. They need to take a day, take a day to rest, sleep as much as you need to, and then come back fresh. Because, right, if I think of the, you know, when you're in a an airplane and they tell you to put your oxygen mask on you first, because you yeah. can't help somebody else until you help yourself first. I think, you know, we're a team of, of counselors, so you have to be able to to help yourself before you can be fully present and help other people. Um, so so that's a concern. The burnout can lead to the sickness, which yeah. then, yeah, you got to take your sick days. But, you know, it, the, the cost was already burnout and it's so hard to come back from burnout. Yeah. Um, speaking of burnout, uh, I don't know if this is like entirely off topic, but I'm curious um, how many folks that you see um, are coming in because of this like mental burnout has turned into a sickness or like burnout has led to like a mental health thing being like overblown. All the time. Like it, yeah. it's it's more common than not that, that we're experiencing wow. that. But, and also not to like just harp on, oh, their, their work environment, but also some, sometimes these, the, these people are in a high stress environment, um, but they also don't have coping skills. So that's, that's what really drives that uh, burnout most often is that you're in a high situation uh, or a high stress job, a demanding job, also not coping at all with it. So um, I think it's important to to identify that too. Is that you know 
you can have a, a demanding job and be able to cope, take those mental health days, um, you know, as needed. So you don't get to burnout. But the problem is when we don't have that coping skill, we don't know how to deal with it. And we feel like there's, it, it's just hopeless. There's nothing that will change. Once you start losing that, that hope that something can change, that's where the big problem comes in. Um, and maybe the work environment is really, you know, toxic, then get out of there. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, but if we can, if it, if it's, if it's mainly because we don't have coping skills to deal with stress, that's a lot of the times where we see clients come in and we help them, you know, either decide if this is the environment that they, that is healthy for them. Can they cope with this? Um, or do they need to find a different job? Um, and you know, that's different for everybody. Right. So, yeah. 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 Sometimes it's a little bit of both. Yeah. And also there's yeah. a risk in being able to make a decision to, you know, go out and seek out a different job. You know, there yeah. are many people who are not able to do that. So also want to name that. And people. Yeah, who yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. And people who have like really um, contentious family situations. I say this because yeah. the holidays are right around the corner. Um, <laughs> and so so like for folks who have like really contentious family situations and a lot of that and being around that is the source of their mm-hmm. stress right like sometimes folks cannot just divorce their family um no. for like lots of reasons right and so like figuring out what we can do in those moments um and also yeah. realizing like that everybody has different limitations and that like privilege is a real thing especially when it comes to like jobs uh, options of jobs, money right all of those kind of things yeah yeah and community if that is a thing because I've, I've been thinking about this a lot you know like in what community. ways can you create community and what ways can you you know at least you know communicate with the people around you to kind of express because sometimes just venting helps sometimes just talking about you know what's going on gives you some sort of like relief in the moment um and I oftentimes think about like what you know, what would we say to someone who was dealing with these sorts of issues, who was in a position like, um, you know, for example, who was incarcerated? We've been talking to, you know, individuals who've been incarcerated or, you know, um, prison abolitionists, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, you you can't really change the situation right now, right? So um, what are some of the things that you can do? What is within your control? And And I oftentimes try to think like, if we can't say it there, you know, what can we say? And it actually is a is a great segue into the the question, the last question I wanted to ask you, which is about young people, because yeah. you know, kids, you know, adolescents, teenagers, they oftentimes can't change their situations and they feel very hopeless, which is, you know, what brings about a lot of the challenges that they have when it comes to mental health. Just not having that feeling of being in control can be really overwhelming. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, and then they may turn to things like substances as well. So um, what are some of the initial signs? Because we also know they don't always have the language to say, I need help, or, you know, this is what I'm dealing with. I'm feeling anxious. Um, what are some of the signs that we may notice in young people? And I think you said you served um, them from 13 to 17, but 13 and through 17 is still very young. I mean, these very are very tender age. Yeah. Eighth grade, also, you know, I taught yeah. the eighth grade population. Um, and so, yeah. So what are some of the initial signs that we can kind of be looking for as it relates to our young people? Uh, Changes in behavior, changes in engagement, um, withdrawing, 
isolating, uh, angry outbursts that are unusual. Unusual behavior are generally some signs to uh, to explore. Yeah. Um, and so I would I would start with that, you know, for example, not wanting to go to school and that hasn't been an issue in the past, but it's coming up more and more. That's a change. We need to explore that. We need to figure out what's going yeah. on at school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, also on the same wavelength, like any tips for parents who have noticed a change in their young one and they want to help, but they also are, are aware of their own kind of like mental health stuff. Like how can parents stay mindful of like, you know, their own emotions while like helping their kid hopefully not fall into the same pitfalls they fell, fell into? Well, I, I think it's important that they identify what they're experiencing, why it's even there, and think about the coping skills that they need to work on. Um, but like we were talking about before, what what could we include in schools for children to learn? The parents can also start talking about emotions, start talking to them, asking them what are they feeling, help and guide them because like we said, they're not always going to um, be able to identify that. So being able to talk to them about the emotions and, hey, why don't we try this together? Why don't, you know, um, making sure that they don't develop those inner core wounds. So making sure you say, hey, I, I know I love you. Um, I see you. I hear you. You're safe. You know, I'm a safe place. Um, so starting there and um, I don't have a, a teenager, but I do have um, a seven and a three-year-old um, so and I have an right. example. <laughs> I have an example of how I kind of helped my seven-year-old work through that um, very recently, if you don't mind, uh, if I yeah, share that. Please. So um, yeah, my daughter, she's seven and um, loves school, but came and over a couple of weeks or so started to say like she didn't want to go to school and that's very unusual, very concerning. So I started to ask her, is somebody um, bullying you? Is somebody being mean to you? Um, what's going on at school? And at first she really couldn't identify it. She just, she just at first said, no, there's nothing wrong. And then came back and said, I think there is, but I don't know. Um, and I said, okay, well, do you feel sad at school? And, and she said, yes. And so I said, when do you usually feel sad the most at school? And she was able to say, tell me uh, in the morning when I have to do AR tests. So AR tests is reading. Mm -hmm. um, we've already talked about in the past where uh, in the past, she's struggled a little bit with reading. Great, like top and everything. Um, but she struggles a little bit more in reading and she's very much that person that like, if she, she cannot not understand something, she cannot be one of the best at something. And so I had to, to have this real conversation with her of, you're not going to be the best at everything and that's okay. There's nothing that you need to do for mom and dad to love you. You try your best at everything. You put your best effort in everything. And because of that, we're proud of you. Not because you get straight A's, but because you try your hardest. Right. Um, and then I just went into also telling her, like, you know, if we need to do extra work, then we'll do extra work. Um, we need to practice more than we'll then we'll practice more. 
Um, but it, it was more about identifying the feeling, right? She didn't want to go to school, not because she was scared of something, somebody, but because she was feeling discouraged and, and sad because she wasn't um, performing to her standard, right? And, and so we had to just have that conversation of like, you're not going to be the best at everything and that's okay. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the types of conversations that I would encourage parents to have with their children. Um, what, regardless of what age is being able to have that open conversation about what are you experiencing? When do you usually experience and experience that? What is the fear or what is, what is um, the, the most challenging part about, you know, that whole situation and just take the conversation from there. So it's really normalizing talking about emotions with your children. I also think it's like really important how you said like you know you wrapped up everything and then it's like nothing that you do at school will change how much you know your parents love you and like like how valuable you are to us and like all of these things because I think that's like a thing that maybe some adults uh, forget right but that everything the stakes are so high when you're a kid um and they and you know everything kind of feels like it it will make or break how much people love or accept you. Um, and to like finish everything out with like, nothing will change how much I love you. You know, you're you're the best if we have, to, we, will, we will do whatever we have to do, you know, in order to like overcome this problem. But like, that has nothing to do with like who you are or how loved you are. And I think that's just really important. Absolutely. You don't want them to start achieving just so they can seek approval and, and acceptance. Right. That's where the, the problem comes in. So yeah, it's just letting them know there's something they need to do to be loved. They're already loved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dude, fantastic. <laughs> How much different would the world be if everyone had that level of, you know, security and safety in childhood, emotion? Right. But, yeah. And I and I also think like this kind of connects to something that we've been talking about, which is like generational trauma and yeah. um, generational healing and that it starts with, you know, like our parents talk to us the way that they were talked to as kids. And we, and, you know, a lot of folks in like our generation, and I mean, like millennials, especially, right, like we are taking a lot of that and like looking inside ourselves and like trying to fix that and then like moving that forward and changing Mm -hmm. the way that we talk to our children. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. It's learned from somewhere. Absolutely. You got that behavior from something, somewhere. Nothing comes up in a vacuum. Where did you learn that? Exactly. The detective. That's the detective in me. Yes. Where did you learn that? And that's that's kind of again at the beginning we were talking about um what drives like this work is trying to figure out why people do the things that they do. And that's not because you're like there's something wrong with you, you're flawed. Something happened to you that influenced that coping skill. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I teach writing uh, and like close reading and a lot of things I say is like, you know, writing a really good paper or having a really good idea starts with being a careful and observant reader. And I think I've heard some of that being echoed in what you were talking about, about your kids is that it really starts with being careful and observant and like noticing a change and then asking a few questions about it. Right. And a few more questions until, you know, you maybe get somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Be curious. Be curious. Yes. I love this as a, as a, like a, you know, a takeaway for the episode is like, 
be curious about why you are the way you are. Be curious. Yes, embrace Yes, and and what we tell our clients is be curious without being judgmental. Oh, this one. (laughs) This one, very important. Very, very important. Um, I think like I had an experience growing up where my mom would ask questions, but they were, they felt really judgmental, right? And how yeah. that can do yeah. just as much damage as like, uh, you know, just right. like saying something out of pocket. Yeah. And it's right. oftentimes yeah. what we do to ourselves and we're judgmental is like what we also project onto others, you know, mm-hmm. it really starts with us. And as parents, that's something I've recognized with me. It's like, I'm so hard on myself when I do a certain thing and I'm like, I'm doing the same thing to my children, you know? And I realized that I have to start with myself and it's really difficult when you, you know, when you were raised in an environment where everything you did was, you know, kind of picked apart or like measured against the standard, you know, I definitely had perfectionistic parents. And um, so it's, it's been taking a lot of work and it's still a journey for me, you know, and I think it's, it's going to be an ongoing thing. Like you said, it doesn't ever fully go away, but we learn how to, you know, catch it quicker or close that gap between, you know, what we're thinking and what we're doing. Um, and so that's something that has been, you know, really difficult for me, but, you know, life-changing, I think. Yeah. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that it is this like ongoing process, um, yeah. You know, I think of it as continued growth, not ever yeah. necessarily arriving to one specific point, right? right. Um, it's, it's this continued work, this continued growth. Mm-hmm. Progress over perfection. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Larissa, this was such a great conversation. I think um, so much of what you shared was really helpful for me personally, and just as a refresher, as a reminder but I also can imagine that there are many people who really didn't know about these specific terms or strategies um, for healing and for coping themselves and just the importance overall of like our inner child work and, you know, really like taking the time to explore this topic. So we thank you so much. Um, This is such important information for the community. Yeah. And thank you so much for like, you gave us a really robust list of, coping mechanisms over the course of the podcast (laughs) and you were so gracious with about that and like I think that's so helpful um we need this right and we need this like you know everywhere so thank you so much for coming on our podcast and sharing your expertise in this manner yeah thank you for having me like I said I can go on and on and on about these kinds of things so I really appreciate you letting me go on my tangents um and I I truly enjoy um sharing this with others because like you said not a lot of people know about it and so when they come when people are like generally intrigued generally curious uh, curious and want to know more I'm like absolutely let's talk about it so I really appreciate it yes um I think another name for this podcast is like pressing people's special interest button especially when it comes to like mental health wellness sustainability yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely thank you so much Larissa thank you Hey listeners, I just wanted to take a moment out to say thank you. We have the deepest gratitude for your support and your willingness to listen to our episodes on the Decolonize to Thrive podcast. I'm also asking that if you have just a few seconds that you take a moment quickly to rate and review our podcast, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It would mean so much to us if you left your feedback. 
about how the podcast has impacted you or anything you might have learned so far. Secondly, we ask that you do share and follow our Instagram page at Decolonize to Thrive. And finally, we would love to feature your thoughts in a subsequent episode. And you can share those by leaving a voicemail at 312-843-3033. Or you can email your thoughts to decolonize to thrive at gmail.com. That is decolonize number two thrive at gmail.com. Again, we thank you so much for listening and we appreciate your support.